Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. In this episode, we will talk about Islamism and anti-Semitism. I'm Evelyn Marcus, and in addition to being a psychologist, I'm featured in the documentary about anti-Semitism, Never Again Is Now. I am a Dutch Jew and the daughter of Holocaust survivors. In 2006, I emigrated to the United States because of the rising anti-Semitism in Europe. I am Phyllis Simbler-Miller. I grew up in the Midwest and in a community where our parents and grandparents had fled the Tsar and had come at the turn of the 20th century. And I am also the founder of the free nonfiction Holocaust theater project, ThinEdgeOfTheWedge.com. In September 1970, only 25 years after the end of the Holocaust, my U.S. Army officer husband and I were stationed in Munich, Germany, and has changed our lives forever. Dexter Venzile is an investigative journalist based in Boston, Massachusetts. He has researched and written a lot about or extensively about Christian anti-Zionism. Since March of this year, Dexter is the managing editor of the website and online newsletter Focus on Western Islamism, established by the Middle East Forum. Focus on Western Islamism educates its readers about the threat posed by Islamism and the efforts to counter it in Western democracies. It serves as a hub for counter-Islamist research and analysis and seeks to give voice to anti-Islamist Muslims. Dexter, it's great to have you as our guest on this on this important topic. Thank you for coming on and welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I get to ask the first question, which is, can you please tell us the difference between Islam and Islamism? Sure. Uh, Islam is a 1,400-year-old religion. It's a monotheistic religion. Uh, that has many manifestations and has uh, a lot of different interpretations. And it's been a source of great solace and uh, comfort for uh, huge numbers of people throughout history. Uh, and it has, a, a, you know, a, a wide variety of, of sects and uh, I wouldn't want to call them denominations, but interpretations and in how the faith should be practiced. Uh, and there's a large group of people who are working to essentially help update the faith so that it can essentially, uh, so that its adherents can live in peace with uh, themse themselves and other people, other Muslims and non-Muslims in the modern era. Uh, and then there's a, 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 another group of uh, adherents who are essentially trying to uh, essentially restore, uh, you know, to achieve some sort of nostalgic utopia. And that is what brings us to Islamism. And just to remind people, and by the way, I don't want to make a joke, but when you said it has a lot of sex, it's S-E-C-T-S, -E not... Yes, that's right. And I always worry about using that word, but S-E-C-T-S. -E yes, I, it's funny because the first word I thought, oh, oh, wait a second. But I wanted to say that it, Islam as a religion came out of Saudi Arabia in 600 something, right? And right. that's where it burst into the world. Right. So it's after Judaism and after Christianity and then Islam. Right. So, so you said Islamism is a uh, nostalgic utopia. Um, and, and what does that mean in content? Well, what, what well I, I think that essentially what has happened is, is that there are, are, are a number of Muslims uh, 
uh, Islamism was founded in the early 1900s by, you know, people like Hassan al-Banna and uh, Syed Madhudi over in uh, South Asia. Uh, and it was updated or reworked by Sayyid Qutub uh, uh, several decades later. But there are a number of commentators who essentially want to restore uh, Islam to what they thought to its uh, preeminent place in world civilization and in world politics. Uh, because uh, after the, uh, you know, the, the dissolution of the caliphate by the, uh, by the modern state of Turkey in the 1920s, that was a great source of humiliation. And so I think that Islamism, the way to describe Islamism is, is that it's a utopian political agenda that is rooted in the humiliation uh, that wants to essentially uh, restore uh, Islam and the practice of Islam uh, to a preeminent and dominant force in world civilization. Uh, and to that end, essentially what has happened is, is that uh, there are some people who engage in dawah or essentially a form of evangelization uh, to try and transform in particular Western democracies, or restore a Muslim majority societies to uh, a utopian past that never really existed. Uh, and then there are other people who've engaged in acts of violence and there's a, uh, to basically uh, bring about that utopia through force of violence and terror. And the problem is, is that there's a conveyor belt between those two techniques. Uh, and one of the things that we've seen is, is that, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood was founded in the 1920s, uh, but there has been a significant number of other organizations that still affiliate with the Muslim Brotherhood who uh, essentially either engage in acts of terrorism or, in, or uh, a strategy of dawah to transform uh, both Muslim and non-Muslim uh, non societies to uh, essentially what they think, how they think the world, the human condition should be governed. And just to be clear, this is a very strict interpretation where women stay at home and they're totally, right? Is that correct? Right, I, I think this is one of the things uh, it, it's, and I don't want to, I think it's a, It's kind of, Islamism is uh, offended by a, a lot of what we see in modernity, which is this notion uh, that, that women are allowed in the public square, that uh, human beings are essentially, that they are able to kind of uh, wade through the human condition without having to uh, follow uh, uh, the guidelines or, or Sharia uh, or the path that's been offered by Islam historically and that they want to essentially impose that. And, and one of the things that we've seen is essentially attacks on, on people's freedom of belief and also their, their ability to actually speak openly about Islamism and Islam. And they're, you know, one of the things that is most troubling about th th this movement is, is that they've made it so that not only can you not speak openly or criticize uh, their political agenda, but that you can't subject uh, their religious faith to any scrutiny. And uh, this is one of the things that's problematic because in the West, religious beliefs are subjected to intense scrutiny, debate, and dialogue. And if... Uh, and what that does is if you if you insist that other people can't speak about your religion, that puts you in a position of privilege and supremacy over people who don't share your faith or even people who do share your faith and want to discuss how it should be practiced and interpreted in the in the modern world. What, why are you monitoring Western Islamism? Pretty much for the same reason that we 
that historically people try to monitor communism here in the West. Uh, and I, I don't, because it's a political agenda that's uh, rooted in, uh, you know, a, a religious belief or in a religious system, uh, but it's an authoritarian political agenda that seeks to deprive people uh, of their freedoms and also uh, works to undermine the constitutional order of Western democracies, pretty much the same way that, that the communists did in the aftermath of World War II. And one of the interesting things is that just as the communists used the freedoms that were accorded to them, the right to free speech, for example, to essentially work to impose or bring about their authoritarian political agenda and pursue their, their, their utopian worldview and their, their, their ideas, uh, Islamists have essentially used the, the same freedoms, uh, like the freedom of religion uh, and uh, free speech, to essentially undermine other people's uh, rights to those very same goods as well. Exactly. So what is the threat of Islamism to the Jewish state and to the Jewish people in the diaspora? Well, I think this is really one of the big concerns. Uh, the Jewish people, just so people know, I spent 17 years working as a pro-Israel activist. And I, I have great admiration for the Jewish people in the modern state of Israel. But at, but at the same time, I was always worried about anti-Semitism because it, it's a very destructive force. And ultimately, uh, the Jewish people represent an obstacle to, uh, in a lot of people's imaginations, to this demand for what Bernard Harrison is called project-driven homogeneity. And he, he talked about that in his first uh, or in his most recent book about uh, anti-Semitism. Anytime you have a grand project uh, in which you are going to refashion humanity and you are going to essentially bring about a utopia and you're going to impose your system of beliefs uh, and thought and action on people to achieve that utopia, you're looking for essentially human beings to be homogeneous, to, to their certain homogeneity. And historically, there's always, you know, the, the, the Jewish people have represented a certain obstacle to achieving that homogeneity. And I think that's really one of the, that's kind of one of the elemental problems is that if you have a grand utopian agenda, at first you're going to, uh, and this was true with, uh, uh, you know, the uh, middle, you know, the Christians in the, the Middle Ages, they thought that they had some sort of uh, solution for how the human condition was going to be resolved and fixed. And what happened was, is that they saw that the, the, that the Jewish people did not convert. And it was a great source of offense to them. And uh, essentially, I think that every utopian worldview ends up finding itself hostile uh, to the Jewish people because at first, they think they have a solution that the Jewish people will accept. They'll say, oh, well, they're going to embrace this. And, it's, and, and some do. Uh, but then what happens is, is that there's a, another group that, that doesn't. And they represent, I think, for a lot of people, uh, essentially the, the stubborn nature of the human condition and, and humanity. <laughs> to, and, I, and I apologize for using that word because, you know, the whole notion of the stiff-necked Jews and, and stubbornness will... That's how people are in general. Okay. You know, I'm, you know, I don't, I'm as stiff necked as anybody else, you know? And, uh, 
So uh, I, I think that th that's really what's going on is, is that there are people who look uh, at the J Jewish people as an obstacle and, you know, the Christians, you know, there there's some of us who just look around and they say, you're still here. Well, why? And I think it, it's kind of like the uh, the end of Ferris Bueller's day off. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie where he looks directly at the camera and says, what are you doing here? And I think that that's how it is for uh, a lot of people when they deal with the Jews, uh, Islamists included. That's and, a very interesting take on anti-Semitism and 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 adds to the exp explanation we're still trying to find uh, for the the recurring anti-Semitism again and again and again over history in all cultures, uh, almost all cultures or many cultures, it's happening. And and th this is a, an interesting part of an explanation. What was the book that you that you mentioned? I, uh, I think it's called Blaming the Jew. Uh, politics and delusion but bernard harrison he's written a number of stellar books or at least two stellar books about anti-semitism and i should i actually have it somewhere in my basement i could grab it but i don't want to interrupt the filming I, okay I thank you that section but no, it's but thank you for section. thank you for for introducing that book to us yes yeah. and i want to just ask one little thing before evelyn goes on this concept of utopia as um, homogeneous is really an interesting concept that I don't think I've heard spoken about before. I always think in terms of, they think they're right, we should all do what they want, whoever the they is. But that they actually think it's a utopia when everyone is exactly alike is fascinating for me. I mean, do you know where that thought comes from? I mean, is that basic psychology or? I don't, I think people always have had a tough time with difference. And, and I, I think that's part of it, I think. And it's just fear of the other. Fear of the other. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I'm just guessing right now I'm kind of spitballing. I haven't really thought about why people think that, but they have a very specific goal that they want to accomplish. And they think that they can get everybody on board with it. And we see that impulse manifest itself in authoritarian ideologies uh, all the time. And, and I think, you know, that, that's kind of what we're dealing with right now. Thank you. Evelyn? So anti-Semitism is the term used for discrimination against Jews and Islamophobia is the term for discrimination against Muslims. Both terms refer to, a, to so both terms refer to a similar phenomenon, discrimin discrimination of a religious or ethnic group. Yet, these terms are applied in a very different way. Can you please elaborate on that? Well, one of the things that uh, whenever we write about Islamophobia at the, at the Middle East Forum and at Focus on Western Islamism, uh, we put it in quotation marks. Mm -hmm. And that is not to deny the reality of anti-Muslim bigotry, which we condemn. But we want to essentially document and highlight the manner in which uh, is accusations of Islamophobia have been used to essentially silence criticism uh, of, of Islamism, of Muslims, and to basically silence any discussion of, of, of Muslim theology, scripture, and belief. Every religion in the world today is subjected to criticism, analysis, and hermeneutics, some of which are pretty rough and aggressive, because people have different opinions about the proper response to the world condition. 
uh, the human condition. And one of the things uh, that I have seen is the manner in which essentially it's used to kind of silence criticism of people who embrace Islamism as a method of essentially achieving dominance and supremacism over, over other human beings, whether they be Muslim or non-Muslim. Because if you are an Islamist, you essentially think that you have the right to decide how other people are supposed to live. And it's not just like so that you can live free, but you will actually work to uh, basically take away other people's freedoms. And one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is that, uh, and I started to read, and this is going to sound like it's coming out of left field, but I've been reading a little bit about uh, slavery here in the United States in the 1800s. And in the 1800s, uh, we had a group of people who thought that it was okay for them to oppress and mistreat their fellow human beings because they had the proper skin color. And when Abraham Lincoln came along and said, so do you think that it's okay if you think that you actually, it's you can legitimately have property rights over other human beings, would you be okay with with black people owning whites as slaves? And the answer was obviously no. Uh, and they came up with an explanation why as to why white people were superior to blacks. And the interesting thing was is that when the abolitionist movement really got going, one of the first things that that the uh, that the slaveholders did was they worked to prohibit the, the mailing of abolitionist literature uh, into the Southern states. And their argument was, is that you're inciting hostility towards us as a people. And all we're doing is trying to exercise our legitimate rights, our legitimate property rights, okay? I think there's a similarity because what we see is, is the Islamophobia charge is essentially an attempt, it's an, it's an allegation level to make people feel guilty for inciting uh, violence against Muslims when in fact what they wanna do is have a discussion about Islamism and Islam in the modern world. And I think that the Islamophobia charge is essentially the same, uh, is motivated by the same impulse as uh, the laws, the, uh, the advocacy for laws to stop people from uh, mailing abolitionist yeah. literature in the U.S. mail, to silence that discussion, because it's a discussion that once it becomes out in the open, it's a discussion that you're going to lose because everybody instinctively understands that, uh, you know, and I don't want to sound too woke, but <laughs> if you invoke uh, some sort of uh, you know, right to basically oppress other people, that same right can eventually be deployed against you. And one of the ideas that's popped into my head is suppose I wake up tomorrow morning and I have a religious belief in my head or I've had some sort of religious experience that tells me that I have the one true faith uh, and that I am entitled to essentially impose my will on people of uh, other religions because of that, how are they gonna respond they're gonna say, look, we're all equal before God. And one of the things that we have to remember is that rights inhere in us as human beings and not as adherents of any particular religion. I think you should say that sentence again. Well, that rights inhere in us because of our status as human beings and not because of our adherence to any particular religion. I think that's a very strong statement. Thank you. And, and how would you 
contrast that with how anti-Semitism okay. is. Now, all right. Now, I want to make it clear that there is such a thing as anti-Muslim bigotry, and I condemn it. And uh, and it also, and one of the reasons why we it's important, not only is it wrong, but it also hinders efforts of Muslims uh, to, you know, update their faith. It puts them on their back feet and it makes them uncomfortable. But the, I look at Islamophobia, if you look at the, and I gathered some of the data uh, from uh, LexisNexis, the, the, the use of the word Islamophobia has generally been more popular or has erupted in after acts of Islamist violence or jihadist violence that have basically frightened everyone. And so... I think that Islamophobia is deployed to silence criticism of Islamism and Islam after Islamist and jihadist acts of violence. I think that anti-Semitism in the main is used to basically justify acts of oppression uh, and violence against Jews before they take place. And so it's a, there, there's a chronological thing going on here. Uh, People are interested in scapegoating uh, Jews and Muslims for many reasons. They'll deploy a narrative about the evils of the Jewish people. And essentially, the people will then use that to essentially justify, say, like a tree of life massacre. Whereas Islamophobia is deployed after people start to speak openly. Or the allegation of Islamophobia is deployed after people start speaking openly about Islamism, uh, and uh, and Islam in the modern world, and how Islamism needs to be defeated, how the power of Islamists needs to be curtailed, and how uh, Islam needs to be updated, just like every other religion has been updated and transformed in the modern world as well. Okay. So many of our churches and synagogues um, are involved in interfaith dialogue with Muslim organizations. And often we don't realize uh, that we are dialoguing with an Islamist organization, which, which means an orthodox um, political Islamic organization. What are the names of the main Islamist organizations in the West, especially those active in interfaith dialogue? Well, one that I have basically been contending with most openly and is the, the Council on American Islamic Relations. Uh, there's a number of organizations like CARE. That, that's CARE, right? Yeah, CARE. And there's other organizations that essentially are, who, who were founded by members of the Muslim Brotherhood. And one of the, and so, and I would say the Islamic Circle of North America, uh, Islamic Society of North America are, are organizations that people historically need to pay attention to, uh, and also the Muslim American Society here in the United States. And this is really one of the, the tragedies of, uh, of all of these organizations is that essentially uh, they were, were founded by people who were not intent on promoting civil rights, but were intent on advancing the agenda of organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood or Jamaat-e-Islami. Uh, which is from South Asia. And this is a very troublesome reality. And the, the great tragedy is, is that they pursue an agenda or have historically pursued an agenda and to a large extent still do 
that is not really embraced by most of the Muslims who live here in the United States. I just did a long interview with Umar Lee, uh, who is a, a Muslim convert from St. Louis, and he he talks about his the practice of his faith. He's looking for a religion that helps him get through, and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing it, the developmental challenges of being a human being in modern America. He's not interested in imposing his ideological worldview on anyone. And I think that that's the way it is for most Muslims here in the United States. The problem is, is that these Islamist organizations, uh, oftentimes they are the ones who end up being anointed <laughs> by, by the federal government or state governments or even local governments as the representative of Muslims here in the United States. And, and what has happened is, is that they have a monopoly. They are the ones who are able to represent the community uh, the Muslim community to the wider uh, body politic uh, in American society. And Nihad Awad, who is the executive director of the Council on American Islamic Relations, he recently eulogized uh, Yusef Karadawi, who was the spiritual leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, who said hateful things about Jews. But if you go on, the, on CARE's website, you will see regular condemnations uh, of anti-Semitic attacks in ma many American cities. So something doesn't compute. And so I, I think there's a, and I don't wanna, I need to be careful not to paint with too broad a brush. But one of the things that I'm concerned about is, is that virtually, or a lot of the, the, the Muslim founded organizations here in the US have their roots in the Muslim Brotherhood of the Jamaat Islami. There's, there, that is an historical fact. And the question is, are they going to be able to transcend their roots? And are they going to say, we're done with this? The Lutheran Church, for example, they distanced themselves from Martin Luther, uh, who said hateful things about the Jewish people. Uh, and I think that that's really one of the, the processes that we're going to have to see, is are people really willing to update uh, how they practice and think about their religious faith? And... And, 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 and recognize that while it may be a source of solace for them in their lives, they may not use it to justify the oppression of people outside their faith or even within their same faith tradition. You know, yeah, so, so, so we see, for instance, the Islamic Society of North America that you just mentioned as uh, one of those uh, organizations representing Muslims in America, is rooted in the Muslim Brotherhood and is, for instance, the the partner is partnering with the American Jewish Committee or is or was till recently. I don't know exactly the status right now, but um, so there we have a major Jewish organization uh, partnering with a major Islamist organization in America, um, and probably. I don't know why, but probably because the government also partners with the Islamic Society of North America and the website looks looks tolerant. So why not? You know, but if you look further and I wonder, I hope Jewish organizations know what they're doing or will better investigate who, what they are doing when they partner with uh, a well-known uh, is Islamic organization in America because many are Islamists. So, can can people 
who whose organizations are thinking to partner with a particular organization? Is there a point in which, you know, there's sites online that you can check facts, I forget what it is about um, whatever. Is there an organization or will your organization answer? If I were to write a question and say, I'm a so-and-so organization and I want to partner with X, is X really committed to anti-Semitism or is it a cover? Can I well, use you right. or yeah, something that, else? The, the, all right. The, one of the first things I would do is I would encourage people to go to the Middle East Forum's website and just Google the name of the organization in question and see, uh, you know, and search for the name of that organization on our website and see what data we've actually been able to publish about that. And that, that and then if you have interactions with the local leaders or the local chapters of the organizations that we've written about, we say, so what's your take on this? And ask them to, to, to and, and I don't, and, and, and that's going to be a tough decision that every organization local is going to have to, to contend with. And also another thing, and this is, you know, this is going to sound very silly because I'm, I'm a professional researcher. <laughs> but one of the things that I've always done is, is that if I'm coming across a public figure uh, in the in, in religious life here in the United States, one of the things I immediately do is I search their name and I plug in the word Israel. Mm. Okay. And, and, you know, right now I'm more about defending Western civilization and uh, from an, a religious authoritarianism than I am about just confronting specifically anti-Semitism. The problem is, is that oftentimes every authoritarian movement has a problem with the Jewish people or the, the, the modern state of Israel. So it's a marker. And so once you, once you discover that, you know, or you can go onto their website and you can actually just plug in Palestinian or Palestine and see what type of information or misinformation they're broadcasting about it. And one of the things that, you know, that I have in this, I don't want to go too far, but the same strategy, well, I, I don't think you can do, go too far, but the same strategies that have been used to delegitimize, demonize, and disorient uh, Israeli Jews have basically been deployed against Westerners and Americans, uh, the same strategies, the same tactics. Uh, they portray Israel as being a state born in original sin. Well, the 1619 narrative is the same thing about the United States. And ultimately, what they're trying to do is to get people to give up the ghost. And so you can look closely. If, and if also if they affiliate, uh, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, this is one of the things that Islamists have done is, is they've taken wonderful advantage from their perspective of any of the pre-existing uh, uh controversies and disagreements and di divisions within the societies that they operate in. And they've done this in Europe and they've done it, you know, very well in the United States as well. So, you know, once you start to look at their website and also look, you know, look at the, the, the look at our website and also just, you know, look in the news data banks to see exactly what they have said about a number of hot button issues. And you'll be able to figure out, what these people are about. It's not really that hard. Okay. So what you're saying is due diligence. Right. You get in bed with these people. Yeah. Well, and, your, and the Middle East Forum websites could be a good start. Yeah. And I'm going to put the link at the end of the uh, interview. Thank so, you. okay. We're about wrapping up. We're going to give you last words, but I do think that many of our listeners know about the Muslim Brotherhood, but for those of uh, perhaps our younger listeners 
would you just give like a two or three sentence wrap up of who they are? And what they uh, well, the Muslim Brotherhood was essentially founded in the 1920s. In uh, Egypt, right? Yeah, in Egypt. And essentially it spread out throughout the Middle East and it promoted essentially this nostalgic view and explanation that the reason why uh, Muslim peoples were no longer uh, the proper, are no longer enjoying the status, of, the preeminent and dominant status that they historically enjoyed was because people uh, were not, uh, practicing Islam properly. And they went after the rulers of the region as well. And what happened was, is that the rulers uh, in the Middle East, they figured out either they could either bribe them and give them money so that they could go cause trouble outside of the Middle East, or they could periodically throw the leaders in jail. And essentially what has happened is, is that not only did they serve as the justification or the ideological bedrock for groups like Al-Qaeda and Hamas, which is essentially an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, one of the things that they did was is that they promoted this notion of Dawah to essentially undermine uh, Western democracies who they regarded as being in a state of ignorance. And, and they, they declared that their own rulers were in this state of ignorance as well, and that they needed to somehow achieve political power. And there, uh, Cynthia Farahat has recently published a book about the Muslim Brotherhood, and I've seen a webinar on it, which you can see on the Middle East Forum's uh, YouTube channel, which I think is important. And the problem is, is that that has also been picked up by another organization, that whole, uh, uh, by the Jamaki Islami group, uh, which is headquartered or, or founded essentially in what is now Pakistan. And uh, essentially, so there are, the, there are a number of different flavors of this uh, of this religious authoritarianism that's rooted in, uh, you know, Islamic nostalgia. Uh, and what is their plan for America? Well, I think that what they really want to do, it, you know, and, and the problem is, is that whenever you start talking like this, people think you're crazy. But essentially what they're hoping to do is to essentially, I think, exhaust us. And there was a, a document that said that they were engaged in civilizational jihad, uh, and what they were hoping to do was to essentially undermine confidence in our own way of life uh, and essentially impose uh, a, a caliphate on, on somewhere in the world and then use that to govern Muslims throughout the world. Uh, and, I, and the thing is, is that in the United States, there's an awful lot of people, we're in kind of a doldrums, we're in a sense of uh, we're not happy about the direction of our society. And there's an awful lot of people that feel guilty about uh, Western civilization and American history. And one way to get out from under that burden of guilt is to essentially uh, either embrace uh, uh, a political view that, uh, that continually levels the charge of Islamophobia to protect the minority or actually convert to Islam yourself. And, and I think that's, it, it, it's a campaign of exhaustion and uh, disorientation. And uh, and the thing is, is that it's hard. Once you start talking about this, you have to be careful not to uh, to overstate their their strengths, because I think we, we can defeat them. And you also have to be careful not to allow yourself to uh, become a mirror image of your adversary, so to speak. That was very well said. Can you give us your last thoughts, particularly, you know, this has been an incredibly enlightening uh, interview, but what can we as individuals, so we're not going to 
um, be the leader of an organization and figure out who to, what can we do individually to offset this kind of insidious undermining of American values? Well, I think one of the things is that we maintain a commitment to free speech in American society and in the West in general. And uh, also, I think that we need to uh, align ourselves and serve as allies to the best we can to people who are working to promote uh, the rights of women in Muslim-majority environments, uh, and also essentially uh, work with reformers. You know, when I first started as, uh, and also to protect the rights of, of uh, ex-Muslims and listen to their testimony as well. But we need to do that without insulting the, uh, the, the the religious sensibilities of people who are still in the faith. But one of the interesting things, and I'll close with this, is that you know I was when I first took this job in March, a couple of weeks after it, I said, "Man, this is really pretty overwhelming," because I started to learn more and more about the the, the th threat of Islamism, and I was like, "This is just unbelievable." And then I got an email from a a, a Muslim activist who fights against anti-Semitism. He's a founder of Muslims Against Anti-Semitism, Wasik Wasik. And I, I said, oh my word, uh, there is hope. And then I interviewed Umar Lee, and he is very critical of uh, anti-Semitism. And it's very clear that, or at least to me, I don't think that he's interested in using Islam as a, a method to oppress uh, his fellow Americans. So I think we need to remain hopeful. Uh, and I, I think that, and also look at signs of reform. Take a look at Iran. There are people right now that are risking their lives to defeat uh, that, that tyrannical theocratic regime. They're, they're sacrificing their lives after, you know, how many years? 40, you know, 89, 99, 2009, more than 40 years of, of terrible oppression by these people. And I think we have signs that we're, we're starting to recognize that Muslims don't want to live under Islamism either. They don't want to live under that, that agenda. They don't want to live under that regime. And once we recognize that, and I think there's, it'll be much easier to remain hopeful and rational. And where can we find Muslim reformers and moderate Muslims? Well, you can read, uh, you can go to uh, Islamism.news because we are actually working to promote uh, their writings. Uh, there's a group called Muslims Against Anti-Semitism. And also I would, uh, there's other, there's a, I just heard about this from Umar Lee, there's a Talif project, which essentially looks like they are essentially promoting uh a moderate, non-confrontational practice of Islam. And I, I, one of the things that I think that, the, that Daniel Pipes has always argued is, is that the United States is going to play a significant role uh, in the modernization of uh, how Islam is practiced. Because, you know, we, we are pretty rough on religious authoritarians here in the U.S., Dexter, thank you so, so much for this interview. Really, it's been enlightening and, and we just so much appreciate it. And we thank our listeners for listening. And for any of you who have not yet watched the documentary starring Evelyn of A Never Again Is Now, you can see it on Amazon and YouTube. You can learn more about my free nonfiction Holocaust theater project at thinedgeofthewedge.com. 
And as we include every time on our podcast, please, as long as you can do this without putting yourself in physical harm, speak up against anti-Semitism and all hate.